Hello, and welcome to Leather Talk with Mr. Bullet Leather 2020. I'm your host, Brandon. Today's guest is a New York native who's been involved with the leather community for 20 years. He's a member of Onyx and has been involved with several other organizations, as well as worked professionally with HIV and AIDS relief since 1982. A friendly reminder for those just tuning in, this podcast is reserved for audiences 18 years and older. With that said, let's sit back, relax, and get ready for some more Leather Talk. This is Brandon, your Mr. Bullet Leather 2020, and today we have Daddy Sage. Hi, Daddy Sage. Good afternoon. And where are you logging in from in the world today? I'm logging in from Harlem, New York. Oh, very cool. Very cool. So it's a few hours ahead over there, huh? Yes, that's why I said afternoon, because I know you're still in the morning. <laughs> yes, I'm just still having my coffee. <laughs> Well, for those audience members who might not be familiar with you, would you mind uh, just giving us a little intro, please? Well, I'm a mature, <clears throat> I'm in my 60s, um, black, gay, leather man. Um, I reside in New York. I've been involved in the leather community off and on for the last 20 years or so and have traveled throughout the country um, as well as internationally um, involved in leather, primarily with um, men of color. Mm-hmm. And um like to think of myself as an elder and a, a mentor to some of the younger um, brothers that come into the other community. Uh, that's the name Daddy Sage, not only because, because of sexually, but because of how a lot of people see me mm-hmm. as a mentor and a guide. Awesome. Awesome. And we'll get more into that as we go on. I want to thank you again for coming on the show. Uh, the, re- the way we got connected was really through um, Master Joshua. Absolutely. He's a, he's a wonderful man. Um, we met a few years back, connected, and we both have gone through some difficulties in our lives, but we both have stayed connected throughout. Um, I learned from him. He learned from me. We share information and I respect him. And he respects me. Awesome. I love that. Yeah, he's incredible. And it was it was the first time on the Zoom that we went over like two hours with question and answer to the point where I was like, okay, you guys, like we got to let him go. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, he, he was very quick when he saw you to point out that like Daddy Sage needs to come on the show. And I'm like, okay, I trust Master Joshua. <laughs> so here we go. I was, I was honored and very surprised when you invited me because um, I have a vast um history within the gay community um my leather experiences not may not be as vast as master joshua's but i do hope to help people get to a, a, a space of support and comfort for themselves as mm-hmm. opposed to worrying about how people will see them or perceive them or their own leather journey mm-hmm. yeah absolutely so let's get into it then i'm curious to know i mean as you say, well-seasoned or experienced, when did you 
figure out that you were not straight? I mean, how old were you? <laughs> not straight. Well, honestly, I'm 65 years old and um, I'm a child of the 70s. So mm-hmm. I have been dating girls and had a basic life. Um, I was a, as my brother says, a creative child. Um, and I liked more um, fashion and dance and the arts as opposed to baseball and football and sports, even though because my brother required me to learn those things, I knew about them. I also did other things. Mm-hmm. And, um, I had my first experience outside of high school, after high school. I was in my first year of college and a friend of the family saw something in me and he kind of like dared me one day um, and asked me some questions about if I was gay. And I said, no. And he said, have you ever been with a man? And I said, no. And up until then, my ideas of gay were very stereotypical. I only saw... um, Everybody who I thought of as gay was always much more feminine and flamboyant. And for me, they were cool, nice people to hang out with, but they weren't, I wasn't sexually attracted to them. Mm -hmm. And not until this more straight looking man approached me and it stirred something in me that I've ventured into that world. So I was um, almost 20, it was like a month before my 20th birthday, where Mm -hmm. the first time I kissed or did anything sexual with another male. So, I I mean, growing up, did you not have the thought in your head growing up like, oh, I'm attracted to men or did it never cross your mind until that moment? No, because, again, um, growing up in um, in a suburban area, when you um, faggot was the word faggot wasn't used that often, but the word sissy was used Hmm. a lot. And if someone was a sissy, they were seen as like a male doing female things. So the guys who got pegged with that name or that moniker used to be much more feminine. And so they were fine. I didn't have a problem with them. They were nice guys. Um, I didn't shun them away, but it, it didn't arouse any feelings in me sexually. And not until I kissed the first guy and the kiss developed tingling in me that didn't, that felt very different than kissing girls. Um, <laughs> it, I was like, there may be something to this. And at the end for maybe a, a good year and a half, maybe two years, I dated men and women equally. And, you know, I didn't talk about the men in my life, but I also continued to have a girlfriend. And it's just a quick story. You know, I grew up in a very traditional family. Mm-hmm. And growing up in high school in the early 70s, I couldn't call a girl's house after 8 o'clock at night on a school, on a school night. Okay. It's like, you know, and it's not so much that it was her family, my family. My mother my mother would be like, what are you doing? You have to res- be respectful. But I can call a boy's house and if I said I didn't go to school today or if I missed the homework, I can call I can call Brandon's house, but I can call Brenda's house. Hmm. Even if Brandon and Brenda were sisters, I had to say I was calling Brandon. <laughs> because it was like it was just respectful for a male to call another male after eight eight thirty, nine o'clock at night on a school night. When, as a teenager mm-hmm. um, versus uh, calling a female. Or if I was to go out on a date, I had to physically get up, go leave my house, pick her up, take her wherever we're going, do whatever we're going to do, take her back home and then come home. As opposed to, I can, meet my, I can meet my buddies at the park or at the club or at the whatever. So dating men opened up a world for me of liberties I didn't have as a teenager growing up 
dating women. And this was also at a time where the legal drinking age was 18. And most of us have had our, had our first drink maybe at 15 or 16. So, you know, so we were already drinking and carrying on. And a few of us have even had even experimented with some other things at that point. It was the 70s. That's all I'm going to say. It's really interesting that you point that that out, like the difference between what's okay with a boy and what's okay with a girl, because that's how I justified looking at gay porn when I was a kid, because I remember watching the Titanic. And I don't know if you've seen the Titanic, but like, yes. okay, so there's like a, a, a woman sprawled out naked on the bed, right? And mm-hmm. And she's being drawn or painted or whatever. And I remember my sister and I were sitting there watching this with my mother and my mom goes, Brandon, close your eyes. I said, why? She goes, well, it's okay for women to see each other naked. It's okay for boys to see each other naked, but it's not okay for the opposite sex to look at each other naked. And I thought, oh, okay. So then the first thing that I went when I looked at porn on the internet, I typed in like naked guys and right. gay porn came up. I'm like, oh, this must be okay. Okay. Because I can <laughs> see boys naked. Right. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And I bring it up because I'm a child of the 70s. And interestingly, you know, this is the time where a few years after Martin Luther King is killed, it's a few years we're in the um, war in Vietnam, worried about being drafted. The sexual revolution is happening, free love, as well as women's lib. So all those things are converging at the same time. I say things about being a boy because I, I have a sister that's a few years younger than me. And, you know, the worst thing you could have said to her in the middle of the 70s was he can do it because he's a boy. Mm. No, no, no. Oh, my God. Women and men should have the same rights. Da, 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 da. It was that kind of lifestyle. Yeah. And it was like, yeah, it, you might say that, but, you know, you don't want to think about what a 15-year-old girl could do on the street versus a 15-year-old boy can do on the street and, you know, and how people see them differently. So, yeah, it was very different growing up. And I, and I had a, a kind of a suburban, regular childhood where we had two parents in the home and we talked about several things, but there were things that boys did and there were things that girls did. And there were community norms that kind of hovered over us until we were old enough to make our own decisions. So when you came out, did you, I mean, did you come out to your family? Did you come out to your sister? And Actually, I did. Um, once I, quote, unquote, fell in love with another male and realized that the feelings I had for guys were stronger than the feelings I had for the girls. And at the time, I was technically engaged to be married um, to a woman. Um, I had to end that relationship and part of the my ending that relationship was to disclose to my family that I was different and I liked guys. And that my my relationship with this young man who they knew of was more than just platonic. And wow. so that kind of changed the dynamic. They did they but then for a while, every time they saw a man saw me with a young another man they didn't know previously, it was always, Is that your boyfriend? Is that your boyfriend? Is that your boyfriend? Who's that? Who's that? And if I was like in the basement or with somebody um, for more than an hour and lights were dimmed or watching TV. They're like, what y'all doing downstairs? What y'all doing down there? I was like, okay. That was my clue that I needed to make my own decisions and move out the house. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, did, I mean, did they have a problem with it? or did They, they just didn't not... because um, they had challenges. I don't want to say problem. Mm-hmm. Um, Again, I didn't fit the stereotype 
that what they were used to seeing as gay. Um, I had some, uh, my mother had a very feminine cousin who we all knew of, and he was part of the family. But when I came out, I knew that I did not want my life to be like his, only because I never saw him with a partner, um, and maybe because I was much younger than him. But whenever we had family events or whatever, I saw straight members of my family be able to bring a girlfriend or boyfriend to the, to a family event. Mm-hmm. But I never saw him ever bring anybody to anything that we did as a family. He was always there, but he never brought anybody with them. And I often thought that when I got to that place in my life, when I had somebody, I wanted to share my life with them just like everybody else. And again, in the 70s, where, where the world is pushing the norms, you would say, I would, I would say things like, it's okay, if it's okay for her to have a boyfriend, or her boyfriend to spend the night. It's okay for my boyfriend to spend the night. What do you mean? You can't. It's like, well, she can't have her boyfriend spend the night. If we can't have these double standards in the family, everybody should be able to do the same things. And it kind of challenges my family's pseudo-liberal constructs. Wow, you were you were a brave kid because I would have never been, <laughs> like I would have never been like, well, if she can, then I can. <laughs> yes. Yeah, but this was, but I wasn't, I wasn't like 14 anymore. I was now 21, 22. I lived at home until I was 23, and then I moved out. I moved out, and, and I moved in with a boyfriend, actually, so yeah. Okay, okay. Now, I'm, and you don't have to talk about this subject if, if you don't want to, but I'm curious to know uh, what the T is on the subject of when you said I'm tech, I'm technically engaged to be married to a woman. Oh, I, I had a girlfriend, a long-term girlfriend, and she was around, and we, I, and her family loved me, and we were close, and you know, it was like, well, maybe she could, and she went away to school, and I lived, still lived in New York, and like we should think about making this permanent. I'm like, really? Should we do that? And so there was talk about when we got married. And I had not bought a ring, but that conversation was on both my parents' minds as well as her parents' minds. And so they thought that was the next step, Um, but it didn't happen. So, I mean, I know you said, like, you at some point you decided that, or you realized that you were attracted more to men than you were women. At the time, from what I'm getting, you were still, I mean, okay, are you still technically in, involved with women or attracted to women sexually? Oh, no, 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 no. Um, now I'm exclusively gay. Um, okay. I only deal, date sexually, date and romantically involved with men. But um, yeah, then it was really about testing the waters. And by the time I got to my late 20s, I hadn't had, I have not been with a woman sexually since before the 80s. <laughs> wow. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So you've been you've been gay longer than I've been alive. Alive. Right. 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 <laughs> I love it. Um, <laughs> right. And, and let me just say this real quickly. That's why I kind of preface some things because it was a different time. Different things were happening in the world. And as we talk later on, this is also pre-HIV and AIDS. So the world was in a like a very different space. Clothing was much more ambiguous. You know, everybody wore bell bottoms. Everybody wore tight shirts. Everybody wore tight pants. Everybody had big afros. Everybody um, had long hair. Everybody did X, Y, and Z. So it was easy to like just blend in with the world, mm-hmm. as opposed to such um, hyper masculine or rigid 
sexual norms. We were a very different place in the 70s mm-hmm. and, and the early 80s. So. Okay. Well, I mean, that was going to be, I guess, my next question to you. I don't know if you've ever seen um, that TV show. Um, oh, what's it called? Why can't I think of it right now? The Deuce. The Deuce. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yes. I saw one or two episodes. I know of it. Yes. Okay. So I love The Deuce. And I don't know how much of it is historically accurate, but... Uh, a lot of it's very historically accurate about the times and also the way New York was. People would come to New York because New York was decadent, especially 42nd Street and the Times Square area. One of the big things that happened in the late 80s was after the crack epidemic, the mayor at the time, um, who shall remain nameless, his goal was to clean up Times Square and 42nd Street and, and make it to similar. And that was the onset of what it has become now, much more family friendly and family oriented. But New York was wild. You know, I was in high school and I went to high school in Manhattan. And, you know, you can go to a movie theater at 10 o'clock in the morning and sit there all day long. And depending on where you went to or what movie theater you went to, you had to be careful because there were men in the back room, like watching whatever movie, jerking their dicks and so on and so forth. That was very typical. In, in the 70s and stuff, and peep shows and things like that. That was very, very real. Wow. Yeah, I mean, so as you're coming out into, like, this new, I, I guess, like, gay life for yourself in your 20s and stuff, I mean, what were some of those historically different experiences being, like, in the gay world then versus now for you? Like? But see, for me, again, um, I was used to a family life that was very relationship-oriented, so if I dated you, I dated you. I didn't date every you and all your friends, I dated you. If I broke up with you, then I was free to date somebody else. Um, cheating, cheating almost, date, having sex with somebody else was almost a prerequisite for breaking up a relationship. So this is a very, very young and I didn't understand. But for me, once I got into the gay life, it was much more about having the freedom that you didn't have in a heterosexual life. And so it was able to shift gears much more quickly or have sex with much more people without having a relationship. I can bike you, find you attractive, have sex with you, and then go on with my life. It wasn't like now that we had sex, we're like, we're a couple. No, mm-hmm. we're not a couple. And so it was a different kind of conversation. You know, just like I said about free love and the sexual revolution, it was the same thing for heterosexual people that, you know, when you saw people who were and women also were taking much more control of their own sexuality and saying, I can have sex with a man and not be married to him or not think it's going to lead to a relationship. Oh, my God, you must be a hoe. No, I'm not a hoe. I'm just enjoying my life. (laughs) And, you know, those conversations were starting to happen in the late 70s, early 80s and growing up in the world. It was a different place in the world, especially in New York City at the time. So coming into like this new world of non-monogamy, was that something that you were like all for or did you have to adjust to that? I I had to adjust because I wasn't used to that. I wasn't used to my boyfriend last week is with a friend of mine next week. What? Oh, my God. No, that can't happen. You you were my boyfriend. You got over me that quickly. Oh, so, you know, it was that kind of thing. Right. But um. Or if I talk to you um, and I had sex with you, then I thought there was, that we were moving towards something. Mm-hmm. And as I got more and more involved and my life wasn't as um, 
regimented or nine to five-ish or or play or setting up playing the house mm-hmm. it, it, it opened up a, a different kind of world where you were free to experiment and try things and be with more than one person now how about your friends uh would you did you have sex do you have sex with your friends um i didn't have i know i had a set of, a set of friends who were friends and we talked about stuff but we never had sex with one another okay okay and it was interesting we had one buddy of ours who he had sex with two of my boyfriends and he and his response to me was since you won't have sex with me i might as well have sex with them and i was like what <laughs> but we're friends he goes so what and he and he was very much out there like it's okay to do this why why are you why are you opposed to it and i was like but we're friends we don't we don't have sex with each other and go yes we do <laughs> <laughs> okay so you know um, again, this is the '70s and the early '80s. You're, you're, it, the world in my life, the world that wasn't the world I, I grew up in. Right. So, I, so it was a it was a a very interesting way of moving to another another level or looking at relationships differently. I have to say, I'm totally with your friend on the like. Yes, we can have sex with our friends because I remember listening to I forget who it was. There was another podcast I was listening to, and this guy comes on to talk about sex and relationships and he was also i think around your age and he said something like who else are you going to have sex with people you don't know people you don't trust people you have no connection with and then i thought oh my god actually my friends are the perfect people to be having sex with well actually as i as i evolved i said that to people you know some of my best friends are my ex ex lovers and ex partners because they know you well and and you trust them and you if you trust them with your body and your hiv status and your family issues and medication or that and but but you don't tell, trust them to be there for you what kind mm. of that's kind of crazy right and you know i'm you're gonna let somebody who you just met last night who looks good at the bar know and be with you in an intimate way maybe yeah. not you know so so yeah um I, interestingly, as I evolved in my life, I wrote, I did a workshop called Why Don't We Date Our Friends? And a lot of people took took issue with that. Like, date my friends? Oh, no, we can't do that. And I was like, if, as like, you know, if you lost your job tomorrow, can you go to that trick you had last night? Or can you go to your friend if you know for 10 years? Yeah. And if, and if you had, if your mama died and you wanted to talk to somebody, is that boy that you fuck with? Every now and then is the person you call or you talk to your your friend that you've known since high school. You know, the the most important things in your life, you don't go to the man you have sex with and just knows you by your code name or some name you met on Internet. You go to the person who've known you intimately mm-hmm. over a period of time. And if these are your friends. Then why not take it to the next level and have sex with them? Right. And especially when it comes to like the issues of kink and stuff. I mean, the last person you want, like, I mean, I guess I can only speak for myself, but like the last person I want, like putting their arm up my ass is like some random person who I have no idea who he is. And I just met him that night, you know. And if you're tied up, somebody you can't trust. Right. I met you 10 minutes ago and you have a and you have a ball gag in my mouth and you're walking away and I can't stop you. And it's like, what? What? I have to hope you're going to come back and take me down as opposed to somebody who I know has my best interest at heart. Right. Exactly. Exactly. 
Um, so let's talk about the transition because like you, you came into this world that was, everything was just like free love, uh, all these new things. Mm-hmm. And then AIDS comes along. Uh, yes. Uh, how did that affect? Uh, when was the first time you remember even hearing about AIDS? Um, by this point, I was pretty much a gay man. I had two or three quote unquote relationships. And I had just broken up with a, bro- a young man who um, we broke up and lived in, and still lived together. And that was interesting. <laughs> um, yeah, he had a boy, he had a boyfriend very quickly and I didn't. And but he had always had an issue when I went out the house. I was like, you don't get to make those decisions anymore. You don't right. have a say on that. So I eventually moved to Washington, D.C. And while I was living in D.C., um, GRID came along, which was the precursor to AIDS, and gave related immune deficiency. And when we first heard about it, as a young black man, a lot of us thought that because the visuals you only saw were white men. And so a lot of us thought that if you didn't have sex with white men, that you were not, that you may not be exposed to HIV and AIDS. And until you've, and then also if, if you didn't live in New York, San Francisco, or LA, then you were basically immune from getting HIV and AIDS. Little did you know how much people travel to other cities, carry on to other cities, and do other things, um, and how viruses could be in your body as you get up and move from one place to another, it goes with you. And a lot of folks didn't realize that. They thought it was like regional, that if you only lived in certain major cities, you were impacted. So that's my first introduction to HIV and AIDS. I was involved with um, some local organizing in the gay community, also involved with the local gay men's health clinic, uh, where you could go and get VD shots on Saturday and know who not to talk to Saturday night at the bar. (laughs) Um, But it was really about um, giving you information. And by 1982, I was a buddy for for a local gay organization providing support and comfort to men in the community who are dying. And what was your experience with that, helping men in the community who are dying? What was that entail? Well, you know, there was a term we called your your buddies. And a buddy would come to your house, usually. They may cook for you. They may open your mail, read your mail for you, help you fill out paperwork. Um, When AIDS became like this, if you were known to have have AIDS at the time, you were a pariah. And a lot of people didn't want to be seen with you or not or touch you or be around you. So when men were sicker, and this is before we had hospices and a lot of other things, when people went home, they went home to die. Um, one of the things that happened a lot, I lived in Washington, D.C., as I said, and often people would typically go home for, for Thanksgiving or Christmas. And so many of the young men would go home for the holidays and not return. And we found out later on that when they went home, they went home to die because they didn't want any of their friends to know they were sick or they were losing their hair or they had proceeds. So that was very hard. But as a buddy, you would go over maybe two or three nights a week, sit with people, watch TV, give them some comfort, um, personal, personal care, help them bathe, because there were people who would even talk to them or they didn't always eat their meals all the time because like in the hospital, there were people who would leave their their trays in front of their door and not take it in because they were scared of getting the virus. Mm -hmm. So you try to ease some of that pain that they were going through. 
Now, at that point, you guys knew that it wasn't like an airborne disease or anything. Yeah, like by, by 82, 83, we did, yes. Okay, okay. But, you know, the social stigma was still there. You know, guys would, um, would start wearing makeup because they didn't want to cover any any blemishes or, or scars or lesions that they had on their bodies. So they so you would be seen, you would only go out in the evening where the makeup was less noticeable as opposed to going out in the middle of the day where people could see that you had a foundation or whatever else. Um, some of us, some of the men also tried to continue to have sex lives and be viable in the community. Um, if you lost a lot of weight, people were cautious of you because they were saying people with AIDS would lose lots of weight quickly. So all those things happened. And I was a dancer at the time. So I was thin and um, knew that a lot of people, if I had lost a lot of weight quickly, people would be concerned, concerned, at least concerned, right? What's wrong with them? Uh, or for bigger guys, you couldn't be on a diet. You had to actually um, defend yourself if you lost weight. And I had a, I had one buddy who was naturally very, very thin. He used to wear two and three pair of pants every day to give the appearance of being thicker so people wouldn't question him. And he almost never would dress in front of anybody because he didn't want anybody to know how thin he actually, he actually was. Mm -hmm. So when, and when he got sick, it was really hard because mm -hmm. he had less muscle mass to help fight the disease. Wow. Out of all of the um, the time that you were a buddy, I mean, was there any individual person that sticks out in your mind to today, like that you'd look back and you just remember like a specific moment? Oh, there were so many, you know. Um, luckily, I didn't care for anybody who I had been sexually active with. Mm -hmm. And so most of the people who I was a buddy to were people who were randomly assigned to me. And again, when you, it's like a doctor operating on their family. You don't want somebody who you already have a connection to to be their caregiver because you're doing things out of desperation or what you think is best as opposed to what is really best for folks. So you can't always be objective. Um, but there were guys who I dated in the early days who I saw them one week and the next time I saw them, they were gone or that we were going to memorial services for them. I had some very good friends who died. Um, I'm HIV negative. And for a long time in my life, I thought that they had it wrong because I looked at several of the people who were around me or who I had sex with who happened to have died. And I was like, I know what I did with them sexually. So how come they died and I didn't? How come they got the virus and I didn't? And I would tell people it's just dumb luck. I'm not saying I'm better than anybody else or I knew something that someone else didn't know. It was just luck of the drawer that I happened not to get HIV. And after I turned 50, I finally realized that maybe the doctors were right and I don't have HIV. But for many years, I always thought that I would die before I turned 50. And 50 was a cutting point because when you're in your 20s and 30s, 50 seems so far off. But we didn't know many people who, who were over 50 who had HIV and survived. Mm -hmm. Most of my friends died in their 20s and 30s, some in their early 40s. So to make it to 50 and not have HIV, it was like, oh, my God, I beat the odds. Yeah. I can't even imagine being alive in that time. I'm 29. I would have been right in that age bracket. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and Barry, you know, I went home, I remember in the mid eighties, I went home from my high school reunion and hearing the number of guys in my high school who were dead already. 
in the early 80s because some of them I didn't even know were gay. But um, you also, you had not only HIV, you also had crack. And there was a lot of people, especially in urban areas, that would succumb to either drugs or HIV mm-hmm. or a combination of thereof. Because for some people, if they knew they were gay or HIV positive, that they did drugs to ease the pain or, or, or help them cope. Yeah. And so one thing didn't take them out, the other one did. So it was hard. And, you know, now that, interestingly, in, in this year, 2021, it's 40 years ago that we first found out what HIV was or GRID. And so in this celebration of 40 years or acknowledgement of 40 years of HIV in the world, think about the number of people you lost. And my numbers are in the hundreds of friends and family and partners that no longer exist. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it's really difficult. It sometimes it gets difficult, and you do have some survivors' guilt around it. But also, I hope to be a, at a place in my life where I can use my experiences to help young men like yourselves and other men coming along. That you don't have to reinvent the wheel. The wheel's already there. Now, if you want to put hubcaps on it, if you want to put white walls, if you want to get some <laughs> other embellishment, you can do that. But you don't have to start from scratch again. Yeah. Now the the buddy program is that still around? No, because people are living longer now. Mm -hmm. They're living longer now. But for in the early days, so many people didn't have anybody to support them. Or if all of your friends are living with HIV as well as you, who's going to be the one to go food shopping? If you can barely get to the store or go down the stairs, how are you going to go food shopping and carry it back to your house? Who's going to be the one to pay the electric bill and the rent because you're too tired all the time? So somebody had to be there to help them just get through their day-to-day lives and support them. And then there was, again, because in the early days, so many people were by themselves and were were left alone, especially if they were released from the hospital and they were in their own homes, they had nobody around them. So it was, we were there to help give them a level of support and guidance and comfort and camaraderie for people who were literally by themselves. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm curious to know your opinions on this, because based off of your story and several others that I've talked to in the past, it seems like this was a very unique time for the whole LGBTQ community coming together and taking care of each other. Since that time, have you seen anything like that? I mean, where we come together like that? Was that like just a one-off thing, like that decade? Well, you know, it depends. And there's a whole idea about what brings people together. Um, There were hierarchies. And as being a a black gay man, a lot of times I didn't get the same level of support that white men got. And, Mm -hmm. And men got more support than women got especially if you were a butch-looking woman or if you were a feminine-looking man, if you could pass and go into stores or in the churches or in the schools and nobody could clock you, you had a much easier life than guys who were very effeminate. And at the time, we didn't have the word trans. Either you were a sissy or you were trade. And basically, trade was passable. So for a lot of folks, they didn't see those other people or they didn't treat them always well. And if someone can see that you were gay or noticeably gay, they may, they felt very entitled to belittle you and call you out and talk about you in public settings because more times than not, they got supported and you didn't. Mm. 
So the 80s and the, and the language changed, you know, you went from everybody was gay or and then every and then it was gay pertained to men and lesbian pertained to women. Then the lesbians started to change the spelling of the word women from W-O-M-E-N to W-O-M-Y-N so they could take the men out of women, that kind of thing. There were all these kind of things happening. The first um, rainbow flags were created in the early 80s. So you had those things happening. You went from gay pride to gay and lesbian pride to gay and lesbian bisexual pride, to gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgender pride. So, you know, um, as a young man yourself, the word queer is used by a lot of people. A lot of older folks don't always feel comfortable with the word queer because queer was not necessarily a term of endearment or, or a term of positivity. I know for a lot of young folks now, queer is a catch-all. But for a lot of, when I was growing up, that wasn't a word that we called ourselves or embraced. Mm -hmm. So it was a different time. There were times where, because of the sexism, a lot of lesbians did not feel beholden to gay men because of the way, because of the sexism, men had certain privileges that they didn't have. Um, especially if you, if they had come out after being married or had children, a lot of them depended on husbands and partners for their livelihoods. And men, you know, had much more opportunities for themselves. So it was a trying time. And then also the race issue of it that, you know, I lived in New York during the early days of ACT UP. And there were times where, for example, if the act of the state, uh, a sit-in or, or a demonstration, and they arrested everybody, interestingly, the white guys got out of jail much faster than men of color. <laughs> because it's just, you know, the racism of the police departments and the, and the racism of you look like you fit the, fit the profile or whatever, or you have lawyers and judges in your families who can bail you out. And they don't always bail out all of your friends. So, you know, it's that kind of thing. So there were times where some of the white activists questioned people of color about their dedication because they weren't willing to lay their lives down the way some of them were. But some of us didn't have the same resources and the ability to lay our lives down because if I went into jail, I, yeah, I may be there for two weeks where you got out in four hours. And it's a big difference. Wow. So even in in the midst of like us coming together at this time, there were still there were like still this, challenges. Yeah, those hierarchies. Wow, mm -hmm. I I never even considered that. And it's interesting you say that because we did have someone come on the show a couple weeks ago who was very active in in ACT UP. It's really interesting to hear that other perspective. And not saying that they were bad people. A lot of times they were so focused on what they were doing at the time that they sometimes didn't realize other things that happened. Right. Here in New York, ACT UP was the umbrella. There was a, a faction of ACT UP called WHAM, what was called Women's Mobilization, Mobilization in the AIDS Movement, which a lot of females who wanted to do something about HIV or, or for women with HIV, that included all women, not just lesbians, um, but all women about AIDS, that a lot of the gay men in ACT UP that wasn't their issue. So they started other organizations or there was a section called BAM, Black AIDS Mobilization, where there were a lot of people of color who said, you know, the way we see HIV and AIDS is not only about sex, it's also about class and access. And they end up starting other organizations. <laughs> and then there were people who did like um, policy work who were doing work behind the scenes that weren't on the, on the streets. And there were people who were doing treatment information. And 
started treatment groups about how to make sure that folks had access to drugs. So if that was your main focus, some of the day-to-day activisms and demonstrations and parades and things like that wasn't always the way to go because you had to do it in other ways to get the results you needed. Now, were, were you involved with ACT UP at all or any of those organizations? Um, I was involved on periphery. I wasn't a, a member. I knew a lot of people there and did work, but I was working in organizations at, during the 80s and 90s for HIV. I worked professionally in HIV from like 1982 to over to 2005. <laughs> okay. Okay. Wow. Yeah. So I put um, in about 25, 30 years. And I don't, I don't want to like stereotype or anything, but like since you brought it up, one of the things that I know ACT UP did was that there were people in like high profile jobs that, you know, maybe like were journalists and were gay and in the closet or like mm-hmm. um, maybe worked with some kind of government officials and they use right. those resources to go get out and get stuff done. Whereas maybe in like the black community, maybe those jobs in high profile you know, positions were not necessarily at their disposal as much. Oh, it's readily available. That's true. And then also for a lot of those same people, if you did what the act I wanted you to do, they kept your secret. If you didn't, they were out you. And there was a lot of people who had who had real issues about journalists and or activists who knew information about people and were always on a tightrope that if I didn't do what they want me to do, they will expose me. Mm-hmm. And there were a lot of people in a lot of the early days that used that and said, you know, that we need you to do X and you're not doing X. So if you don't do X, they need to know that you're on our side and not their sides. And it, and it caused lots of rifts. Mm-hmm. It wasn't a great way to handle people. It wasn't it by no ways diplomatic, but there were a lot of folks who did work like that. So out of all of your years working, what would you say, 20, 30 years in yeah. HIV? Um, I mean, how, how have you seen it change? I mean, you stopped in what, 2005, you said, right? Right, 2005. 2005. Um, do, you th- do you think you left it better than... Well, you know, there were a lot of things that changed. You know, when I first started in HIV, people who had compassion and dedication and was willing to leave other types of jobs to do AIDS work were valued. Then it got to a place where everybody had a credential. You know, you're at the age where you can go to school and major in public health and get a specialization in communicable diseases and talk about HIV and other things. Mm-hmm. When I first started, there was, that didn't exist. <laughs> so, you know, the, and then there was a time where if you didn't have a, certain degrees or certain credentials, you couldn't move up the ladder. Um, there are people who were lawyers who kept this stuff quiet. And then later on, there were people who were very much out about being gay and worked in the law and used that to their benefit. So, you know, lots of things changed and some things were good, some things weren't so good. Um, There are also people who they followed the money. They adapted their organizations or did anything they had to to keep their doors open as opposed to providing the best services available to the clients that they needed them. You know, there was a time where a lot of people would not take money from pharmaceuticals or from tobacco companies Mm -hmm. because Mm -hmm. of what they did. And there were a lot of other people who said, my agency needs to keep its doors open. My agency needs to buy food for our clients. My agency needs to pay for funeral services. 
If the tobacco companies wants to give me ten thousand dollars, I'm gonna take it. If pharmaceuticals want me to, to partner with them and do a PSA, I'll do it because it gave them resources they didn't ordinarily have. Some people liked it. Some, I mean, some people benefited from it. Some people didn't. Some people thought that they they took a moral high ground and didn't want to take money. Other people said this is about survival. Right. So. I'm not saying it's a bad thing, but it depends on where you were at the time of your life and your development. Mm-hmm. You know, for, after working in direct service for a long time, dealing with people who were HIV positive, living with HIV and dying from AIDS, for a while I had moved completely out of the direct service field and I was much more in administration and policy and prevention to help people who weren't infected or people who were living their lives as opposed to people who were dying. So, you know, it's a change that yeah. you don't yeah. have to see yourself in and where you can be of most benefit. And also, how do you take care of yourself? You know, nurses or doctors who see death every day, at some point it gets to you and you've got to take a break or you have to get away from it and so on and so forth. I have a good friend who's a nurse and he says, you know, he works hard for like three months and then takes two weeks off because he has to get away from it and does nothing medical for two weeks and then comes back and then he he's he's refreshed to be able to do it again but he says working in aids units or working with people who are deaf and dying after a while it wears on you mm-hmm. so how do you take care of yourself in that process if there were and i know we're spending a lot of time on this topic it, it's to me it's important because it offers us a different perspective Context. at least for yes. me yeah mm-hmm. um and, and i don't say that to belittle the young the younger generation because i'm glad that there's a group of men and women who benefited from the work that we did mm-hmm. and it's not because we don't care the same way it's just that you know we laid the groundwork that you don't have to do the same things that's why i said about recreating the will. There are people who come along and say, we should do support groups for people who are living with HIV. And it's like, that's not new. Yeah, you did that. <laughs> <It's> like, um, <laughs> there's lots of agencies who've been doing support groups for years. Yeah. Now that you're HIV positive, you want to do that. But don't think it's never been done before. Right. Or here's the blueprint. You don't have to call it what we called it, but understand that that has been done. But also now with the onset of combination therapies and people could take one pill a day and move on with their lives. And they're saying people are taking one pill to show that they're HIV negative and they want to say stay negative. It's the same thing. I don't have to tell people that I'm negative. Before you had to disclose, you know, right. and everybody, there was a big thing at a time in our communities where you ask people to disclose their, their sexual, their, their HIV status before having sex with them. And then there was a time where there were people who didn't disclose or they lied or they dated according to what you said. I only date other men, I'm HIV positive, so I only date other men who are HIV positive mm-hmm. because I don't want to take the risk of infecting somebody. That was very real versus I'm HIV negative and I'm only going to date men who tell me they're HIV negative because I don't want to use condoms all the time or I don't want to take the risk of getting HIV. That was real too. And so, you know, does everybody always tell the truth? You know the answer to that. But um Right. I mean But you I, know, people I, people will tell you what you what they what you want to hear to get what they want. Right, exactly. I mean, and I have firsthand experience with that. One of my first relationships um when I first came out, you know, I didn't know anything about the gay world. I was twenty mm-hmm. and this was maybe eight, now, eight, that's why yeah, nine years. years ago. Nine years mm-hmm. ago, yeah. And this is I think at least as 
far as I know, when prep started becoming popular. And so there was still that like little transition of like, prep isn't really a thing yet. People are just starting to get on it. Mm -hmm. And this guy who I dated for like six, seven months lied to me about his status. I found out in a roundabout way. Mm -hmm. And and it scared me to death because I had no prior to that any knowledge or experience with HIV except for what you know you're told growing up in school. Right. And uh, I, I just remember that. And you grew up in California where they talked about it in schools. Yeah. What if you did, grew up in Iowa or in Mississippi where HIV information was taken completely out of the schools? Mm -hmm. There was one point during um, uh, the late '90s or the 2000s where there were some states who said. They'd rather give the money back to the federal government than to discuss safer sex practices in the school systems. And that, that was is, very true. That's insane to me. Because they didn't want to talk about, because to talk about safer sex, you have to talk about sexuality. And to talk about sexuality, you have to include all sexualities. And they said, if we have to talk about gay or men and men together, women and women together, we don't want to do that right. in our school system. So you keep that. Ten million dollars or two million dollars or whatever wow. it was, so that we don't have to so we don't have to deal with that. So that's very real. I mean, even in the last ten years, though, now, like you said, we don't necessarily have to have that discussion because people are on prep or they're just they're undetectable right. and undetectable, right? Um, so we come so far just even in that amount of time. Uh, before we before we pivot on to more of your journey here, out of all of your years working so closely alongside HIV. Is there one takeaway or one lesson that you take away with you for, for the rest of your life, a life lesson? Um, you never know where you're going to find love and you are responsible for your own safety and happiness. Hmm. And because so often you heard people like yourself say, I had a partner who lied to me and now I'm HIV infected. And at some level you have to say, do I love me more or do I love him more? And you have to be responsible for your own happiness and your safety, because sometimes everybody is not always honest. And it'd be nice if we were all told the truth, but we all don't um, for fear of rejection, for fear of disclosure, for um, fear of violence. There's lots of reasons why people don't tell you the truth. And we're not here to debate that. But if you want to be protected from HIV or from um, high, any high risk behavior, you have to say, what can I do to, to minimize my risk? It's like for years we say people we say if you go out to a bar with your friends and you meet somebody cute and you say I'm gonna leave I'm gonna leave with him. Do you tell your friends you're leaving with Joe, the guy in the leather jacket in the blue shirt, or do you just slip away and, and call them the next day and say, "Child, I had a great night." Mm -hmm. Some people don't get to call the next day and say, "Child, I had a great night." Yeah, because Joe was crazy. You know, I also grew up in a time where we had um, Jeffrey Dahmer in the Midwest, where gay men would go to the club and Jeffrey Dahmer didn't, didn't prey on the most popular kids. He preyed on the guys who were by themselves at the end of the night. And so here comes this white guy in a car and will pick you up and take you out to, to eat and your friends never saw you again. Wow. So, you know, Whose responsibility is that? But there's so many of us who are so busy being sneaky and I don't tell people who I, where I'm going. And I guess this also lead into the whole leather community that I don't want my friends to judge me. I don't want people to know that I'm, I'm a kink or I like this or, or what my fantasies are or I'm living my best life. So they don't tell people 
I'm going out with Joe or I'm going to his house. Or if you don't hear from me by tomorrow at brunch, this is the address or this is the phone number I went to. We don't do that. Mm -hmm. We say that, you know, you watch like SVU or other TV shows where, you t where, you, where they tell you to tell a friend and people don't tell a friend. Right. They just don't. They go, oh, child, I was having fun. I was doing this or I was doing that. Or, he looked good or he worked here. So he, or he picked up the bills. So I know he was all right. Or look at his shoes. He must have money. You know, and, you, and we make these snap judgments because people look good that they are good. And there's no guarantee of that. No, that's really interesting what you were talking about a little bit earlier, how to tell a friend. And now we have technology. I mean, my partner and I were open. So we actually have each other on Find My Friends on iPhone. I don't know if you mm -hmm. know what that is, but it's like mm -hmm. a tracking device. For your friend. Right. So now it's really easy to like ping where I'm at and stuff like that. And he can see where mm -hmm. I'm going. But, but, but if you have it and you don't use it. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> that's that's very true. That's very. That's what I'm saying, that people... People who want to be found can be found. People who don't yeah. want to be found cannot be found. Right, right. That's all. Uh, so make those decisions for yourself and, mm -hmm. and, and be responsible yeah. for your own health. I do want to pivot. Well, we're going to take a little break right here and end our part one with Daddy Sage for today. Stay tuned for next week's episode where we will get more into Daddy Sage's kinks and personal experiences. Before we go, I wanted to thank everyone involved with our fundraising event this weekend, Leather Together. Thank you to Queen Anna Elgos, my partner in crime, Jackie and Pup Red for helping out at the bar. All of the guests that came on the show this weekend, Drew Kramer, Master Joshua, Mr. Cyan, Shay Flanagan, Miss Cassie, Persephone, Richard Hubley, Pup Star Orion, I want to thank especially Tuesday, Miss Bullet Leather 2016 and Giggles Klein for putting together the ASL interpreters for the event all at the last minute. I can't tell you how grateful I am for all of you. Thank you so much. And just a huge thank you to everyone else involved behind the scenes. Leather Together raised $1,500 for the LELC Cares, Bullet Bar Pantry, and Reach LA. If you'd like to find out more about these organizations, I will link below Leather Talk podcast episodes where we speak more thoroughly about these amazing outreach programs. As always, you can find me on Instagram and Patreon as Leather Talk Mr. Bullet and Twitter as Branded Bullet LA. Thanks again for listening. And as always, stay safe, stay healthy, and stay geeky.